Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Well, welcome to VLC. You guys excited to be here today? Amen, amen, and amen. I'm Pastor Joey. For those of you that are new, I see many new faces today, and some we haven't seen in a while. Just to give you a, a snapshot of Vertical Life Church, we believe everyone matters to God, and you are not here by coincidence. Uh, our church, we, we love to do just a couple of things. We love to get our worship on, as you just experienced. Uh, love to worship Jesus. We love to teach the Bible and walk in His Spirit. And, uh, and so we pray that your time with us would be an encouragement to you today. And I believe that everyone that comes here in the gathering of believers, because God is here, you can come the same, but you'll leave changed. Even if just a little bit, you're going to leave differently than you walked in because he's here. And so we're excited for you to be here with us today. We're continuing in our story. Uh, we are calling The Great Romance. This is our journey through the scripture. We've been teaching through the Bible, beginning in Genesis, and now we're towards the end of the book of Numbers. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at these feasts of Israel, seven feasts that God commanded the nation of Israel to observe once they got into the promised land. And so the, these feasts, we saw the first was the Passover, and then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, we, we talked about not only did they act as remembrances or uh, ways to remember what God did in their nation as he brought them out of Egypt, but also that they were types or prophetic metaphors for what God would accomplish through Jesus Christ when he arrived to set us free from our sins. And we're all thankful that he did that. Amen? Yes. And so it's been exciting to see as we've dug deeper into the scripture what God is really telling us. What is the story underneath the events that are happening here through the Old Testament? I, I've, had, I've had many people come and tell me they love the New Testament, but they snooze through the Old Testament. And I'm like, what? The Old Testament is so exciting if you know what you're reading. And that's why it's important to study. And so today we're looking at yet another feast of the harvest connected to what we looked at last week, the Feast of First Fruits, which was the, the first fruits of the harvest that they brought in. They would plant their crops. They had the rainy seasons. They'd plant their crops. As soon as the crops came in, they would cut uh, a portion of those first crops, and they would dedicate that to the Lord. And that was the first fruits offering. And we saw last week how that represented Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that he was the first fruits that rose from the dead. It was pretty exciting. And so this feast that's coming, you may be uh, familiar with it. It is called the Feast of Weeks. Somebody say the Feast of Weeks. So it's the Feast of Weeks, but a more familiar term is the term Pentecost. You might be a little bit more familiar with the day of or the term Pentecost. And this word comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which means 50. So the Feast of Weeks um, comes from, or the word Pentecost comes from the word 50, and that's tied into the uh, command to Israel on how to observe this feast. And we're going to begin looking at Numbers 28, verse 26. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Numbers 28, but we will be jumping around a little bit today, as well as the YouVersion Bible app. If you open the app and you click on the uh, icon that says more and go to the events page, all of the notes will be there if you can't follow along on the screen. 
So that's there for you. So in Numbers 28 and 26, here is what God commands Moses. He says, At the festival of harvest, when you present the first of your new grain to the Lord, you must call an official day for holy assembly. You may do no ordinary work on that day. So this feast is connected to the first fruits feast. But this word harvest is, comes from a Hebrew word called Shavuot. Say that ten times fast. Shavuot. So this is where the word weeks comes from, or feast of weeks. In Leviticus 23, this is the parallel passage when Moses is receiving these instructions from the Lord. And here's what God says in Leviticus about this feast, beginning in verse 15. He says, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up as a special offering. So the day after this first fruits offering, he says, Count off seven full weeks, or seven sets of seven. So seven times seven, all you geniuses out there, seven times seven is 49, right? So there's where we get 49. The next day, after day 49, is the festival or the harvest feast, the feast of Pentecost. This is when you offer this offering of new grain to the Lord. So the 50th day after the first fruits, the day after 49, is the seventh Sabbath, after they've counted from the first fruits, they were to celebrate a feast called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Verse 17, here's what he tells them to do on this day. He says, From wherever you live, bring two loaves of bread to be lifted up before the Lord as a special offering. Make these loaves from four quarts of choice flour and bake them with yeast. They will be an offering to the Lord from the first of your crops. So they didn't just bring the first or, or part of their harvest, they also had to bake bread. They had to bring the sacrifices as they did with other uh, festivals. And again, this commemorative feast was not just something that represented something Jesus would do in the future, but it represented an event in Israel's past. Passover, if you think about the, the timeline, Passover actually happened while they were in Egypt. Remember, the last plague was coming down. God said, kill the lamb, paint the doorposts with the blood, and the angel of death would pass over your people. And that's why they celebrate Passover, to remember how death passed over the people because of the blood of the lamb. The unleavened bread represented them quickly leaving Egypt and, and how they didn't even have time for their bread to rise, which is why they eat unleavened bread. They had to just make it and go. And so they're on their way out in haste, and so that represents the speedily exit from Egypt that they made. And then the first fruits represents resurrection, really the time they went through the Red Sea as they were once dead in Egypt, a land uh, dominated by false gods. They went through the Red Sea and came out a new people. The resurrection or the first fruits is represented in the Red Sea crossing. So where does Pentecost come in? Where does this feast come in on the timeline of Israel's history? It comes in at the moment we see God descend on Mount Sinai in fire. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. If, if you ever want a glimpse of God, read Exodus 18 and 19. You want a glimpse of God that will make you stand in awe of this great and mighty king, read Exodus 18 and 19 and meditate on that scene. Put yourself in that place as God descends on the mountain in fire. When God descends on the mountain, there's fire, wind, and smoke. He speaks through the prophet, and he ushers Israel into a relationship 
or of new purpose through the old covenant by writing his law on tablets of stone. This happened roughly two months or 50 days after they crossed the Red Sea. This moment is so significant, even more than what Israel could understand at this time. God is calling them out as a people and bringing them into this new covenant relationship. And the significance for what's happening here is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We've mentioned this a few times through the study, but it's important we grasp the story behind the story so we can see what God's been doing as he's been weaving his will all through time. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses, or God tells Moses something specific about a key event that happened in the ancient past. In Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 7, here's what the scripture says. It says, remember days of long ago. Think about the generations past and ask your father and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders and they will tell you. When the most high assigned the lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. So here in Deuteronomy 32, we are getting this glimpse of an event where God separated the people into nations, tribes, and tongues and allotted for them land to dwell in on the earth. When did that take place? It was in Genesis chapter 11 at a city called Babel. You remember the story? The flood had just happened. Man begins to repopulate the earth. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Scatter the earth. Fill the earth with my glory. But rather than doing what God said, they decided to do what they wanted. And they formed a city. And they didn't just form a city. They decided, we're going to build a tower into the heavens. And so they build this temple complex, begin to build a structure to reach up into heaven. And sources outside of Scripture that give insight into this story revealed that they were trying to build a ziggurat, a structure to really call the powers of heaven down to them where they could receive spiritual power and not have to obey God any longer. It was an act of defiance and rebellion. So God comes down and sees what they're doing, and he, and he says that they're one language, one people. Now that they've done this, nothing will be withheld from them. So God decides to separate, confuse people by language, and separate them into tribes and nations. But what Deuteronomy 32 here tells us behind the story is that God didn't just create the different tribes, races, and nations, and allot for them boundaries and places to live. He turned them over. He literally divorces the people of uh, earth, humanity. He divorces them and turns them over to other principalities and rulers in the unseen realm. There's a way of belief called deism that believes that God created and then he just abandoned mankind and really has nothing to do with our lives nowadays. And this is where that comes from. The time where God said, you rebelled in Eden, you followed the angels that brought about the flood, and now you're rebelling again. Romans chapter 1, they worshiped the creation over the creator, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind, and he separates himself from mankind. And now the peoples are run not by God, but by lower divine beings that lead them into corruption, that lead them into the worship of themselves and not the worship of Almighty God. And in Deuteronomy 32, it says, But... The people of Israel belonged to the Lord, Jacob, his special possession. In the Tower of Babel, Israel did not exist. 
They weren't even a thought in the uh, human history or the human mind. But what does God do just after Babel happens? He calls a man named Abraham. And through Abraham begins, through supernatural means, cultivate a people for himself that would one day become the nation of Israel. He turns human humanity, the earth, over to the gods, but yet he calls a man who was too old to have kids. I mean, think about this. Abraham was too old to have kids. His wife was too old to have kids. When God came to them and said, you're going to have a son, Sarah's laughing in her mind at God. Like, I wouldn't do that. That doesn't seem like a wise decision. You know, and then he calls her out on it. She's like, oh, I wasn't laughing. It's like, oh, no, you were laughing. I heard you. You know. But what's God do? He miraculously calls a man and makes him into a nation, a nation that wasn't in existence before. Every point of Israel's history has had a miraculous revelation, which means the nation of Israel themselves is evidence of God's existence. Because they weren't a people, and God turned them into a people through his mighty power. And he blesses them. And Abraham enters a covenant with God through supernatural intervention. Why did God do this? Because he wanted to cultivate a people for himself out of the many he divorced and to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he not only exists, but he rules over all creation. And this begins the process of bringing Israel to this place at Mount Sinai. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, a promise God gave to Abraham was, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And what's that say? All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So when God calls out Abraham, he did it with an intention that one day all the families, that word can be translated as clans or nations. So here God divorces the nation, says, I want, I'm not having anything to do with you. You want to worship false gods? Go ahead. But he calls a man, from a people for himself, but it says one day you're going to bless these nations that I've divorced. I'm going to bless them. So what God is doing on Mount Sinai is Moses is on a mountain, the fire, the wind. He is formalizing his relationship with the blessed seed of Abraham, just as God supernaturally called Abraham and led them to Canaan, God is now supernaturally calling Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And not just to have a place to stay, but to cleanse the land that God chose for himself. Remember, he divided the nations and set the allotments for their territories. He said, here's where you're going to live. And he picked a place for his people. And so he sends them into the promised land and the wars that ensue cleanse the land from the wickedness that's there so that, that God can once again dwell with his people as he did in the Garden of Eden to restore relationship. And we know the story as we read through the Old Testament, Israel forsakes the relationship with God. They do it before he even gives them the law. If you remember, they're worshiping a golden calf while the fire is on the mountain. I can't even understand that rationale. But they turn away from God, and God promises in the word. It's like, if you, if you worship me with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength, I will bless you, 
all will be well with you. You will not see poverty, sickness, illness. You'll have peace in the land. Serve me all your days. I will be your God and you will be my people. But Israel goes the other way. And rather than blessing, they endure cursing. And they get to the place where God has enough with Israel. And just as he did with the nations of the earth, he takes his hand off of Israel. He separates himself, divorces his bride, and they go into captivity under the Babylonians into exile for 70 years. And then they're under the Persian Empire, and then the Assyrian Empire, and then the Byzantine Empire. And then when we get to the time of Christ, we're under the now Roman Empire. And the tragedy of Israel is during this time, the 12 tribes were in Israel. When they go into exile, 10 of them become lost. When they're allowed to return back to their nation, only two of the tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, come back to the land. The rest have been so saturated and scattered, no one even knows if they still exist today. Ten of the twelve are considered lost. Now what's significant is that even though this has been the thing, many people still knew that they were of Jewish descent. This is where the Samaritans come from, as you're reading the New Testament, the story of the Good Samaritan or when Philip goes down into Samaria to preach, or Jesus is at the woman with the woman at the well in Samaria. The Samaritans are a mixed breed of Jew and Gentile that happened during that exile period. And so even though this mixture, this lo- these lost tribes have been lost to Israel as a nation, many of them still kept the customs of Israel and honored the feasts. And there are three holy feasts that they observed in this list of seven where they would actually return to Jerusalem and they would gather to observe these feasts. And this brings us to the New Testament fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So so think about the history. They've been scattered. They've been lost. There's only two tribes that remain in Israel. But here in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus died and rose again, you have a Wealth of Jews from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered to observe this high holy feast. That day happens 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits, in line with this redemptive timeline. And what's amazing is just as God descended on Mount Sinai, the Spirit of God descended on the believers in the upper room. Just as there was fire and great wind at Sinai, there was a fire and wind that fell on the disciples. You can see the mirror image of these two events. Just as God called Israel into covenant through his word on tablets of stone in Jeremiah 31, 33, the prophet Jeremiah says this, that this is the new covenant I will make with my people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their what? On their hearts. So the law was written on tablets of stone at Sinai in the new covenant. The law is written on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but by the spirit of the living God. And it is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. When God pours out his spirit on Acts 2, he does indeed write the law, but he doesn't do it on tablets of stone. He does it on the hearts of all who call on the name of Jesus to be saved. All who believe. 
And the significance of these fulfillments in this redemptive timeline, we read just before the outpour of the Holy Spirit, even though when we read Acts 2, it's like that's what we focus on, the coming of the Spirit. I'm so happy the Spirit is here. Oh, my goodness. Life without him would be terrible. But that's not the focus of Acts 2. The focus is what happens before the Spirit is poured out. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, just after the Spirit's poured out, here's what the, the, the people that heard the commotion say. It says, At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. They were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believer. So the Spirit's poured out. The disciples are out there. They're, they're preaching, but they're speaking all these different languages they didn't know before. This is the gift, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These scriptures then go on to list every nation from where these Jews had come from. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, it says, They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from Galilee. These disciples, they're from Galilee. They're, that's a poor place. They're not well educated there. But they did, had no idea how this was happening. And he says, Yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas around Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. They're asking themselves, what is going on here? This is not normal. Matter of fact, they accused them of being drunk, and it's so funny because Peter's like, it's too early in the morning for that, y'all. Well, we're not drunk. We're drunk on the Spirit, but not, not on anything else. What's significant about this passage is that when you go back to the time of Babel, just before, the Bible lists the genealogies of Noah's three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. This is called the Table of Nations. And it shows the 70 nations that God created at Babel when he divided the languages. The very nations that, that were created when God took his hands off humanity. And when you read this list, you see Jews represented in all but two of the 70 nations. Think about what God has done. You see, this was the original purpose of the gift of tongues. There's a lot of discussion, but in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, it says, you see that speaking in tongues was a sign not for believers, but who? For unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers. He's saying the original purpose for the gift of tongues was this moment in Acts chapter 2. When Jews from every nation, the nations that were divorced by God, were gathered into the city. So think about what's happening in this moment. What's happening that's coming full circle. God in his sovereignty, knowing that Israel would rebel and turn their backs on God. He sovereignly weaves all those that were in exile to go into the 70 nations that he divorced at Babel. So that after the resurrection of Jesus, a missionary from every nation would be gathered at Jerusalem for the outpour of the Spirit. And they would all hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and 3,000 were baptized in a single day. And why would God do that? Because through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There is a transition happening right here in the scripture. God hands authority and power over to these lesser divine beings, these little gods to rule the nations. But God is getting ready to take that power back. And this is why I believe on this feast, if you noticed, it wasn't unleavened bread that they were to eat. It was leavened bread. Leaven represents like, like corruption in many ways, but it, it infiltrates whatever it goes into and expands, and, it, and it, it, it seems to infect everything. I believe that it's leavened bread on this feast because God wanted to so saturate the nations. As sin saturates the human heart, he wanted the gospel to saturate the nations. And this is so significant because when Jesus rose from the dead, remember just before he sent the disciples through the Great Commission to go into all the world, he said, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. All power is given to me. Well, think of this for a minute. Wasn't Jesus God? Didn't he already have all power? So what's he talking about? Why is he saying all power is given to me in this moment as he's getting ready to send his disciples out is because Jesus arose from the dead, conquering the spiritual powers that were ruling the earth. He first had to die to shed his blood to break the power of sin and death. And those that heard the gospel and believed were from the nations God previously lost to this rebellion of fallen angels. So the Jews who believed would go back to their nation and begin to set other people free, pulling people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. But even more than the redemption of the nations, God's original intention, the intention he gave to Adam in the garden, that he gave to Noah after the flood, was that we were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. We were to make the earth like Eden was supposed to be. But after Babel, the earth was turned over to the enemy kingdom, except for one little piece of land and one unknown people God kept for himself. Now here's the mystery of the name Pentecost or the number 50. Again, there's 50 days after the first fruits that Pentecost was to be observed, the Feast of Weeks. The number 50 represents a complete cycle or the end of one season and the beginning of another. And the Israel also had a command from God in regards to the number 50. In Leviticus chapter 25, he commanded them every 50 years would be a year of jubilee. A year that all debts would be canceled. So all those 15 credit cards you've been racking up, come here jubilee, whoosh, Oh, Biden or Biden's cutting you a check. Wiping the slate clean. So the year of Jubilee was a big deal. And it was a time of celebration. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus announces something as he's reading from Isaiah's scroll, beginning verse 17. He says, The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to Christ. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he was looking for this specific passage. 
He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the what? The time of the Lord's favor has come. This is the year of Jubilee. We look at this verse and we think this is the ministry of the Messiah, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But there's something deeper here. He's saying that the Spirit of God has anointed me to do these things. Why? Because I'm getting ready to cancel the debts. I'm getting ready to set the captives free. People have been held bound by their debt. The world's debt is about to be eliminated. But not only the debt that was accrued, there was an additional um, promise in Leviticus 25, 13. In the year of Jubilee, he says, each of you may return to the land that previously belonged to your ancestors. So there was a return to the land that would what happened if you lost your land because of poverty, you 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 got into so much debt, you started selling your stuff and you would sell your land just to be able to make ends meet on the year of Jubilee. You got your land back. You got to move back in. You got to go back home. What happened 50 days after the resurrection, at the time of the Lord's favor, not only was sin's debt canceled, but the decree was made that what was lost would return back to its rightful owner. Jesus sends his disciples into the world in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to announce not only has Jesus risen from the dead with all power and authority, and the enemy kingdom is now stripped of his power and authority, but even the lands they occupy, the land that God lost when he divided the nations in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the territory the enemy rules over is now going back to its rightful owner, the original owner, Yahweh God. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of heaven's armies. Jesus sent his disciples after the pouring out of the Spirit into all the world, not simply to create religious institutions, but to take back the ground the enemy has been unlawfully occupying in this world and restore the kingdom of God over those lands in fulfillment of that command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Bring the whole earth under the rule of Christ. Fill it with the glory of the Lord. This was his original vision. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 6 says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of the unseen world. The essence of spiritual warfare, we're not fighting from a place of defeat, but from a place of victory. We've won. Jesus has already won. The victory has been won. But what's taking place in our everyday lives is the enemy is trying not to give up what he's lost. He's trying to hold on to the territory that it once belonged to him. We even see this in the book of Revelation as the enemy kingdom tries to unify its troops and, and come uh, with people across the whole globe to surround the nation of Israel and attack it one final time. Why do you think the scripture is so focused on Israel? In the book of Revelation. Why do you think today when you turn on the news, it seems like every nation on the planet but America hates Israel? Why do you think that is? It's because the gods of the earth know that's where God, that's where home base for the kingdom of God is. 
And one day Messiah is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, in Israel. And whoever controls the Holy Land, they believe, controls the whole earth. And so the enemy is fighting still to get ground from God. There's this war that's taking place, and nations manifest that war in the physical reality that's happening in the spiritual reality. But there's something else really significant to understand here in Acts chapter 2. It's another difficult passage that we often misinterpret because we don't know the story beneath what's actually being said in fulfillment of Pentecost. And it comes from something Peter says in his message in Acts chapter 2, 37 through 38. It's very familiar because it's often spoken in regards to this particular issue. But in Acts 2, it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Like they heard the gospel, they saw the event, the Spirit is working and moving in miraculous fashion, and they're so convicted, they're like, okay, we, we can't just hear this and do nothing. What do we do? What, what do we do? And here's what Peter replied in verse 38. He said, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we get what you guys have? How do we get to be involved in this covenant? You know, we were in the old covenant, but we want to be in the new covenant. How do we get involved in that? And Peter gives them these specific instructions. He says, repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we usually make this scripture about one of two things. We either make it about water baptism or spirit baptism. Depending on what framework we're coming from. But before this, look at what is declared that actually pierces the heart of those listening. Context is key when interpreting the Bible. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32 through 35, here's the context to Peter's response to them. This is what pierced their heart. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we're all witnesses of this. Now he's exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see in here today. For David himself ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord, or never ascended into heaven, pardon me, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool underneath your feet. Here Peter is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, a messianic psalm about the rule and reign of the Messiah. If you were to flip back there, and read into verse 2. Here's what verse 2 of Psalm 110 says. It says, The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem, and you will rule over your enemies. The very thing that pierced their heart was this understanding of a choice being made. There is a choice. He's not making a plea to take on a new form of religion. He's proclaiming there is now a decision, and here it is. The decision is between which kingdom will you align yourself with? Which kingdom? The Spirit's been poured out. The new covenant has been provided. What kingdom are you going to serve? Are you going to continue in the kingdom of this world in idolatry, serving demonic powers, principalities, and rulers that have defied God, or are you going to trust in the Lord with all your heart and submit to the kingdom and lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So repentance of sin, the way of the world, is the choice between two kingdoms. If I repent, I'm turning away from the kingdom I'm already in to walk in this new kingdom. Repent of your sin and turn to God. But then why baptism? Why is baptism included? You see, it was well known by the ancients in this time, and many believe when you read the ancient text, that the angels who sinned in Genesis 6 were the cause of much of the mess that we experience, the cause of the flood, and even things they did thereafter, angels that left their first estate. And there is this understanding that the flood, the great deep, is connected to the underworld. That it wasn't that God just flooded the earth. He also overthrew the powers of darkness that were messing everything up. And so the, the deep, the water, is connected with the underworld. In 2 Peter 2, 4, Peter, who's preaching here in Acts 2, he said, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, going back to Genesis 6, he said, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Here he's referring to this moment that took place and the result of the flood. But hell is the Greek word Tartarus. Somebody say Tartarus. If you read anything about Greek mythology, you'll come across this word. This word in the scriptures, Tartarus, it is the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment or suffering for the wicked in the prisoner prison for the titans or the gods of Greek mythology. So here Peter in 2 Peter is saying the angels that send God is sending to Tartarus. God sent them to be held to the deep abyss, the titans, the fallen angels, these giant offspring that were an abomination to the Lord are connected, their place that they are being held, this place of judgment is connected with this abyss language. In other places, in Luke 8, 31, when Jesus commands the spirits to come out of the man named Legion, they beg him not to send them to the abyss. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 2, the bottomless pit actually comes from the word that means the abyss. So there's this connection with the underworld being connected to the waters or the deep. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, he uses the word in the Greek to translate the um, the Hebrew word meaning the deep references deep water so abyss and deep water are synonymous from Greek to English why is this important because of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 of what Jesus Christ did again we understand baptism is representative of what Christ did and us being united with Christ amen well let's look at what Jesus Christ did in Ephesians chapter 4 it says therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also did what? What did he do? Descended into the lower regions of the earth. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. What is Paul telling us in this passage? He's saying when Jesus died, he went into Tartarus. He went to the place of the deep, into the abyss where these angels that rebelled, that are being held until judgment remain, even until this day, this place of the spiritual world. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that Jesus was not sent there 
without his own permission, he willingly went there. And not only did he willingly go, but he was able to come out of his own accord on the resurrection day. And not only did he come out, but he came out with something specific. Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the what? The keys to the death and the grave. This realm of Tartarus was not run by anyone other than the one who held the power of sin and death, our great enemy. He's the one that had the power over the place, the realm of the dead. This was his domain when he was cast to the earth. But when Jesus died, he went down there and he said, give me the keys. They don't belong to you anymore. I am God of both the living and the dead. He literally went into the grave to spit in the face of the enemy. I'm getting out. But you're here under judgment. There's no hope for you. And when we are baptized, the reason why we're baptized into water, we are immersed into water, not sprinkled, not poured. We're immersed into water. In unifying in the death of Christ, what's it symbolize? Because I've repented and I've turned to God. I'm going down into Tartarus. I'm looking at the eye of those I once served. And I'm saying, not any more. I'm coming alive with Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm living for a new king and a new kingdom. And Peter says, when you repent of your sin and you change sides, then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is the baptism of the Spirit? It is the power to be his witness. The kingdom of God has come, and all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. This is the feast of Pentecost. And what's also amazing is that now because death and hell have no power over us, there is no fear in death. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather, to be absent from the body, because now when we're absent from the body, where do we go? To be with the Lord. You see, before Christ, to be absent from the body was to go down into the place of the dead. But because of what Christ did, conquering sin and death, now when we die, we don't have to fear. We go to be with Jesus now forevermore. And this is why Pentecost matters. Because we've been called and initiated into a spiritual war that involves physical people, physical places, being redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the importance of the outpour of the Spirit and the baptism of both water and the Spirit to be united in Christ's death and filled with the power to live his life. One thing as I was meditating on this message just before coming out here and connecting to Mount Sinai, I know when we talked about Exodus 18 and 19, we showed a video because they actually found Mount Sinai in Arabia. And what's significant about the mountain is it's the top of it is charred black. And when you break open the rocks, you see it's granite on the inside. It's not black from the inside out. It's black just on the outside because of the descending fire from God coming down on the mountain. In Pentecost, in the Feast of Weeks, is a fulfillment of the New Testament, a fulfillment of that moment in the Old Testament. And what 
just speaks to my heart is that when God's fire fell on the mountain, it was not left the same, but it was marked forevermore. The reason why we seek the Spirit and why you need to be filled and baptized with the Spirit is to mark you for the kingdom of God so that you're never the same. And that process begins by placing your faith and trust in Jesus, saying, yes, I recognize I'm a sinner, I've lived for another kingdom, but I'm done with all that. I'm placing my faith and trust in Christ. You go down into the water to spit in the eye of the enemy, and you come back up ready to live for him. And then God sends the power that you need. And it marks you for life. It marks you for life. The question I have for you, beloved, as we go into a time of response and the music begins to play, have you made your choice for which kingdom you're going to serve? Your parents cannot make that decision for you. Your friend and your relatives can't make that decision for you. It is your personal decision. Have you made your choice? And have you been baptized, united in the death of Christ? And have you been filled with the Spirit, anointed with power, to help live out your call in His kingdom? See, beloved, the Spirit has been poured out. And it's available to all who trust in the Lord. Jesus said, our Father is a good Father, and He'll give the Spirit to anyone who asks. But first, to get the gift, you need to repent and be baptized. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to seek His will for your life. You need to give your heart again, trust in Him again. And I just believe in this moment that there's a lot of religion in the way. There's a lot of religion that's robbed us of what it is to live a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion says, if I do this and I accomplish this and I avoid this over here, and then, th then I'm, I'm in God's will and God loves me and we're cool and, 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 and I'm good. But yet we continue to walk defeated lives under guilt and shame. But when you're marked by the Spirit, you recognize where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Your identity is not in what you can do and accomplish in your own power and your own righteousness. Your identity is now in His righteousness and what He can accomplish in His power because you're a son of God. You're a daughter of the King. Maybe you've accepted Jesus in your life today. Maybe you've been baptized. You've even had powerful encounters with the Spirit. But what's in your life today, you've still not surrendered to the King. What is the enemy still have authority over in your life? Is there a part of your heart or your life you still haven't turned over to the Lordship of Jesus? Maybe there's an area in your life you're still trying to break free from. There's this habit, there's this, this, this seems like there's this curse on your life that you just can't seem to break. Well, what is in the enemy's hand? Where's his authority in your life? Because I believe that there's breakthrough available today. I believe God poured out his spirit to give us the power to be his witnesses, the power to break free from the enemy. He conquered the grave. He poured out his spirit that we would have new life. Amen? If Jesus went through the trouble of going through the grave and rising from the dead, our problems are not a problem for the king. 
So when we go into a time of response, I want to encourage you. Don't stay in your seat. Come for prayer. If you need to receive Jesus as your Savior, you want, you want to accept him as your Savior, come. And we will pray with you. If you need bab- to be baptized, come. And we'll rejoice in that decision. And we'll, we'll pray with you. And look to that day as that's coming up in just a, a few weeks. First of August. There's something going in your life that you need freedom. Come and we'll pray, believing in the power of the Spirit through the mighty name of Jesus for your freedom. If you need healing, come and we'll pray and trusting in the power of the blood of Jesus to bring your healing. Maybe you have other needs. There are other things. You, you just need some encouragement. You're going through a difficult time in your personal life and you just need encouragement from God. This is why we're seeking the gifts of prophecy and the prophetic gifts to hear from the Lord that we can encourage one another. Whatever you're struggling with, when we stand, you come, and our prayer team will be down here to pray with you. And we'll believe, God, that you leave here differently than you walked in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence today. God, I thank you for those that came in just curious to check it out. God, I pray that as your spirit is speaking to their lives, God, that that you would fill them with encouragement, comfort, and grace. God, I pray for those who know that they need to trust in you, maybe for the very first time. Give their heart to you, God, that they'd be filled with the boldness and faith to come forward as we pray. Lord, I pray for the sick, those that need healing. I pray just as in Acts 4, you'd extend your healing hand and that you would pour out your power and in Jesus' mighty name, work signs, wonders, and miracles in your kingdom, Lord God, and that the sick would leave healthy, both the physical and the mental. God, I pray for the oppressed, those that the enemy has come against in a real and powerful way. God, I pray the name of Jesus, break those chains right now in Jesus' name. And that just as you conquered death when you rose again, that there'd be new life, that you would set the oppressed free, prisoners, prison doors would open, the blind would see. We just give this time to you, Lord. We ask you to speak. If there's someone you want to speak to and give a word to, Lord, fill us with your heart this morning. And may we leave differently than we walked in. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. There's something on your heart, a prayer team. There's some on the side, some down forward. If you're a youth and you'd like prayer, we have our youth team down front. Now's the time to respond. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.